Hi everyone, welcome back to the Lake Podcast. I'm your host Karthik Nachipan. In this episode, we are covering two issues that we haven't really heard much about through this podcast: climate change and Bangladesh. The book we're going to be talking about today is called Threatening Dystopias: The Global Politics of Climate Change Adaptation in Bangladesh. In the book, the author Cassia Paprocki underscores that climate change is not a contemporary trend per se but something that's deeply embedded within a longer history and a specific set of socio-economic and political conditions in other words there's a deep history and politics tied to climate change that we all must grasp to make sense of how it manifests and how cities can communities and countries adapt Paprocki incisively covers the story through Bangladesh focusing on how climate concerns fuel vulnerabilities and how certain notions are then leveraged how groups and elites draft and use certain economic narratives or away from certain communities these narratives or dystopia imaginaries reframe climate change from a threat to an up to an opportunity for economic growth and development even though the reality is far from that what then follows is dispossession with the poorest robbed of their agrarian livelihoods however the book also shows us that notions and ideas of climate justice are increasingly woven around climate adaptation processes that often require a radical redistribution of power to achieve here's cassia paprocki associate professor at the london school of economics and political science on her recent book threatening dystopias the global politics of climate change adaptation in bangladesh published by cornell university press Hi, Cassia. Thank you so much for for doing this. Um, I, I wanted to begin by asking how this project began. Yeah, certainly. Well, um, thanks for having having me. I'm really um, excited to have this discussion with you about the book. Um, it's a good question how the project began, because I think it's a little bit different from how most projects begin on climate change. Um, I've been working for almost 20 years now with um, Nijar Akhori, which is Bangladesh's largest landless peasant movement. And um, when I was sort of looking for a, um, a project for my PhD, I had asked them, what would you like me to look at and think about? And what would be helpful to you? And they were at that point really concerned about commercial shrimp aquaculture in Bangladesh's coastal region, mm-hmm. and which they had been um, mobilizing against actively for several decades. And they really wanted somebody to do more research on it to sort of help uh, share about the things that they were concerned about. And so they asked me to go to Bangladesh's coastal region to um, 
to take a look at what was happening with shrimp aquaculture. And they took me there, um, an organizer, um, Rose Rahman, who, um, who was a really close sort of friend and colleague. And I got to know a lot about sort of the political economy of shrimp aquaculture and the threats um, to agrarian rice production through this aquaculture. And it was so bad. The the impacts of shrimp aquaculture were so bad that, and, and, and it was still being supported by development agencies. And I was like, why are these development agencies supporting um, this when we can tell that the social and ecological impacts are so bad? So I started going to the offices of development agencies and asking them what's, you know, what's going on here? Why are you still promoting it? And I found that they were all at that point, and this was like several decades after they had already been supporting it through sort of structural adjustment programs. At that point, the justification was climate change. This is the only solution for this region um, because climate change is going to put it all underwater through sea level rise. Um, and so I, I was like, well, that's an interesting story that they are telling about climate change. And it tells us something about how climate change is being responded to and used as sort of a tool for thinking about the future and what the possibilities are for this region and for Bangladesh. And um, so I want to look at that too. But yeah, it really started as a kind of agrarian political economy of shrimp cultivation. And then it turned into um, a project about uh, climate change and climate futures and um, their their politics more broadly. So Bangladesh came into the picture very early, even before you kind of decided this was going to be a story about climate change. Yeah, it did, which I think is an interesting, um, it's sort of, it's, is a very different way of studying climate change in Bangladesh because in the last, I'd say 10, 15 years, there's been just an overwhelming surge of attention to climate change in Bangladesh. There are tons of researchers going to Bangladesh for the first time um, because they're concerned about climate impacts in Bangladesh. Um, there are you know organizations that host just like sort of you know, all sorts of um, interns and visiting researchers who are just sort of constantly coming to Bangladesh because they've heard about climate change, um, but who haven't necessarily studied Bangladesh before that and haven't necessarily studied Bangladesh um, sort of beyond uh, the impacts of climate change there. And so um, my study of Bangladesh started both sort of through this engagement with the social movement and also through a foundation in area studies. So I studied Bangladesh a lot before I started studying climate change in Bangladesh. And I think the result is um, a different perspective on climate change in Bangladesh than other approaches that start with an interest in climate change first. So the, the the big idea in this book is that climate change does not arrive in a vacuum, but it it, it kind of arrives by uh, entangling and connecting with certain political economies that shape the way in which uh, countries, but also individuals and communities experience climate change. 
Um, what kinds of specific political economy questions do you think are important when we're trying to understand climate change and how it impacts different communities? Um, yeah, that's an, a, a really interesting and important question. And um, I think that I'm going to not answer it <laughs> because um, I actually think that there are not um, general ideas about climate change that we need to understand in order to understand the political economy of climate change. I think we need to understand political economy um, first in very uh, context specific ways and both sort of historically and geographically. And then we can use those understandings to think about um, their implications to climate change. So in Bangladesh, there are um, some very particular kinds of political economy questions that are relevant in general to thinking about development in Bangladesh. And, um, you know, for me, those questions and, and um, for the members of the social movement that I work with, Nidra Akhori, those questions are about um, sort of dynamics of, um, you know, agrarian change, depeasantization, the um, implications of sort of rapid urban and export-oriented growth models to people in agrarian communities. And um, that means that those kinds of questions, because they're so important in this particular context, need to be applied to thinking about climate change and responses to climate change. Um, but in other communities, you know, there are other kinds of important political economy questions that are really sort of urgent in a particular context. And I think that they need to be applied um, uniquely to, to the, the context in which you're asking them. Are there specific political economy issues that are, or that may be relevant to, to developing countries uh, when compared to say what's happening um, in the West? Yeah, this is a really interesting question because, um, I mean, I think that the questions about agrarian change are, um, they operate really differently in contexts where, um, you know, the composition of agrarian communities has transformed so dramatically. And so, you know, in Bangladesh, there continue to be a lot of people who, um, you know, make a living, support their families and survive on at least some um, proportion of subsistence production. So they're growing food that, you know, their families eat, they're gathering um, water and vegetables and firewood that like help them survive. And so um, to try to sort of think about the political economy of subsistence production in, for example, the United States, where there really are not um, subsistence producers or people for whom that is, you know, an important way that they um, continue to survive is, um, you know, it's less relevant, obviously. And I think that if you 
um, don't understand that difference, then it's difficult to understand why it's important in a place like Bangladesh. Um, I think that the something that is interesting in thinking about the sort of difference between the the West countries in the global North and countries of the global South is that um, there are not answers to political economy questions about um, how to deal with climate change that are universal to those different contexts, but thinking about power, who has it and who has power to exercise decisions in different ways is a, a universally relevant question. And so um, I have a, a close friend and colleague, Liz Koslov, who works on questions about um, managed retreat from Staten Island, which is an area, you know, a community um, in New York City. And there she's thinking about communities that have organized to retreat themselves in the face of climate impacts um, from coast, from coastal areas. And, um, you know, in, in Bangladesh and the communities that I'm working in, there are um, people who are being forced to retreat from coastal communities. And so to say like, is retreat the, the appropriate response to climate change across these different communities is a really inappropriate question because it doesn't take into account the complex political economies of the inhabitation of coastal regions. And it also doesn't take into account the complexity over like how the decision to retreat is being made, who is making it, who's being impacted by it. Mm -hmm. And to me, those are more important questions than um, questions about like technologies of adaptation or mitigation without that context. Um, one of my favorite parts of the book was this notion of an adaptation regime. Um, I'm, I hope you can take us through what that is and how did you end up theorizing about it? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, yeah, so um, an adaptation regime, I, I, I played around with a lot of different ways of thinking about um, the sort of confluence of different dynamics that I was observing here. And um, I wanted it to reflect the fact that um, what's happening is very contextually specific to Bangladesh, but that it also has um, much broader global resonance. And so that means there are global dynamics, global ways of thinking about climate threats, global ways of thinking about Bangladesh as uniquely vulnerable to climate threats that are manifesting in Bangladesh, but also that um, the ways that people are experiencing, um, resisting and thinking about these things from within Bangladesh are being um, sort of fed up, fed up into these kinds of global dynamics as well. So they're sort of dialectically constituting one another. And um, thinking about it as a regime felt like the, the best way to sort of um, help me bring together all of these different dynamics. Um, 
I, I, I think that also, so the, the, the methods for the book, for the field research involved um, ethnography with like farmers and social movement groups, as I said, in rural areas. And they also involved a lot of time spent with development practitioners and scientists and policymakers in Dhaka, which is Bangladesh's capital. And this is a remarkably coherent group of people. Um, they show up at the same seminars and events and meetings on a, like a weekly basis. And um, the same people get invited to the same kinds of events all the time. And once I sort of um, was able to insert myself into this community of practitioners of adaptation, um, it was you know, pretty easy to start seeing patterns of action, patterns of discourse, patterns of um, exercising power through sort of action and discourse. And so, uh, you know, that also helped me to understand this collective as a kind of regime. Um, the other aspect here is that there's an adaptation regime that exists across different levels. So there's one at the global level, there's, there's one at the, the national level, and these level, these regimes interact between one another. Um, I guess that's how, um, that's how countries increasingly also see dealing with climate as an economic opportunity and a constraint at the same point. Um, yeah. How does a state like Bangladesh square this, this, this tension? Square the tension between... Between thinking um, of dealing with climate as an economic opportunity and oh, also something that is an existential threat to them. Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, I think that right now Bangladesh is um, concerned with growth in general. At, like the Bangladeshi state is concerned with economic growth and um, climate change adaptation is an opportunity for growth because it offers new ways of thinking about um, what is owed to Bangladesh to support that growth. And so um, sort of a leader of the, you know, this, this group that I call the adaptation regime in Bangladesh um, said to me once, you know, we were never owed development aid um, after decolonization, um, it was given to us as a kind of charity. And there were never treaties that said that the countries of the global north um, must give it to us, um, even if we thought that it was our right. And that meant that it wasn't our decision about how to use it. It was never our decision about how to use development aid. But we are owed climate finance. Um, there are treaties that have committed it to us, and um, you know whether or not it has come through sufficiently or under the terms that we would like to like it to come through. There's like an estab established global legal and political framework that says it is owed to us, and um, 
So that means it's a substantively different thing. And that um, creates a different kind of context for thinking about climate change as a, a political opportunity and an economic opportunity for Bangladesh. Um, I think that the threats of climate change to Bangladesh are not thought of as unique existential threats by the Bangladeshi state because um, the kinds of threats that you know you hear about Bangladesh, like a third of Bangladesh going underwater, those kinds of threats, Bangladesh deals with um, flooding all the time. And um, it has, since its very inception, um, grappled with how to manage these kinds of disasters as um, the sort of fundamental function of the state that gives it its legitimacy. Um, so that this specific regime in Bangladesh also imagines that the southwestern part of the country um, as as redundant and and not not worth um, preserving given its its vulnerability to yeah. climate impacts. And yeah, and you write in the book here, and I quote: the the threat and discourse of the dystopic future of the southwest becomes both a rationale for experimentation and an excuse for its failures. The spatial imaginary of a landscape that is already on the verge of annihilation allows planners to treat, treat the Southwest as an adaptation tabula rasa. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually struck by how quickly specific ideas about climate and its effects coalesced through this particular regime. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, how did that happen and how much was that contested even within, within the country? Um, yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting question because I think that um, the adaptation regime manifests in ways that appear coherent within its own structures and discourses, but there also are all sorts of ways of imagining Bangladesh's climate futures within the country that do not involve um thinking about climate change. And so actually, um, you know, one really interesting way of, of thinking about this will be sort of opened up to us when um, I, my colleague, Jason Kahns, who's an anthropologist at UT Austin, um, has been also working in this region for a while. He studies borders in um, the sort of India-Bangladesh border. And he has been over the last few years doing some research on the Mongla port, which is also in the Southwest of Bangladesh. Now, um, there's all this investment in these deep sea ports that are sort of popping up all along Bangladesh's coast. And um, there's sort of investment from China. Bangladesh is gonna be sort of a key mm -hmm. node on the Belt and Road. Mm -hmm. Um, there's also a lot of investment from India because India doesn't want Bangladesh to be sort of colonized by China. And um, these are totally new ways of imagining this mm -hmm. landscape and its futures. And um, so, you know, 
the idea of this space as a tabula rasa um, is not unique to climate change because these, especially these agrarian spaces all over Bangladesh um, have always been thought of as sort of available for new imaginaries of development. Mm -hmm. And so if at one point it is um, climate change, you know, as I describe in the book, like um, we can do whatever we want with this region because um, climate change is going to make it unviable, then, mm -hmm. you know, it, very quickly after that, it can become a new logic of um, this area could be much more productive and um, all of a sudden we could have like a totally new development model where we're putting in airports and we're putting in coal-fired power plants and even uh, sort of nuclear power plants and we can do all of these new things because now it's no longer threatened by climate change now it's sort of a space of this new um you know, upper middle income development model. I actually heard that um, someone, I was having a conversation once with a a British sort of humanitarian worker who was telling me that, you know, they imagined um, this as a space that needed to be retreated from because of climate change, but that in maybe 20 years, he said, you know, maybe this space could be like Bangkok. And all of a sudden it would be this really desirable, um, you know, new kind of environment where people, you know, wanted to come and go on vacation and there were new investments and there was going to be an export processing zone. And um, this is not like a coherent logic of how this development trajectory happened. What's coherent is the idea of um, dispossession and experimentation. You mentioned the BRI, and and, and you also mentioned India. Mm -hmm. I think the last time I was in Delhi, there was, there was a lot of conversations about India exporting renewable energy to Bangladesh. Yeah, um, and this is something that I have not heard a lot of before. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just the last few years. Mm -hmm. um, how is China's BRI and India's own reaction to that through this new form of energy diplomacy affecting yeah. Bangladesh's imaginary of development? right now yeah i mean it's funny because i think that like i think that this is another kind of incoherent mm. um element of the development imaginary because um yes there's a conversation about india exporting renewable energy to bangladesh but also um you know indian banks have invested substantially in coal-fired power plants in Bangladesh that will export power to India. And so, um, you know, none of these are um, coherent visions for an energy transition. They are visions for increasing investments for the financialization of energy development on both sides of the border. And um, I think any suggestion otherwise about the sort of green energy transition in like either of these countries is false. I guess, I mean, which is why you need to, you need to 
adopt a political economy lens as well to understand Absolutely. the kinds of power relations that are embedded in how how countries are moving towards a climate tra transition and the kinds of other forces at play which are either constraining or affecting that process. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I think also just like thinking about energy transition mm -hmm. can't happen in a vacuum as if there's like a, um, you know, a certain amount of energy that is used and needed at a, any given point. I, there, I had a conversation with this senior diplomat about um, a, an American diplomat in Bangladesh about the promise of um, solar energy in villages in Bangladesh. Bangladesh has a massive network mm -hmm. of um, sort of off-grid solar power all over the the um, the villages, uh, especially in the, this coastal zone. And um, he was saying, you know, well, once once we get one solar panel, then they're going to get a light, and then they'll get another solar panel. And um, maybe they'll have a radio and a TV and they'll get another one and they'll have a DVD player and then they'll have another one and they'll, you know, and they'll get all of these like uh, consumer electronics. And I was just like, I, why do they need DVD players? Like, that, like this is like, is this the, the vision of development is that all of these, you know, every home in every household in these farming communities has enough solar panels to power a DVD player. And like, why, why does our vision of a, of an energy transition have to involve that? Who came up with that? And um, like, how, how is it that that is embedded in the conversation about our energy needs? So I, I just think that like, thinking about, mm. um, you know, the energy makeup in the absence of like what the makeup is for and why is, uh, a, you know, a losing game. I, I keep hearing a lot about climate futures these days. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know about you, but in most of the articles and the conversations that are about climate futures mm. are very technocratic. It's about mm. financing, technology, institutions, policies, that are required to drive climate transitions. There's very little on the deep structural changes and challenges that have to be um, grappled with to um, facilitate that future transition. Um, and in the, in the conclusion, you write that, and I quote here, I'm hopeful about the possibilities for more equitable climate change futures, but writing capitalist dispossession out of this picture would make it incomplete. Um, dispossession in some contexts may be displaced onto other communities or ecologies, but is inherent in the social relations of climate change as an ecological manifestation of capitalism. So how do we as scholars I think, embed you know, aspects of power relations and, and, and asymmetries when we're thinking about climate futures? That's a really good question. Um, I think that the best way to, um, embed an analysis of transformed power relations in conversations about climate change 
is to start with um, is to start with the social movements that are already thinking about and leading us toward an analysis of those power relations. And so um, for me, that was Nijar Khoury. Um, but in other contexts, there are other struggles for social justice and transformed power relations that also offer promise for us to think about what those, you know, how how to think differently about those power relations. And um, I agree that most conversations about um, climate futures right now are very technocratic. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think that looking for struggles that aren't necessarily yet speaking the language of climate change is also a really important political and intellectual exercise. Um, and this is something that I grapple with a lot in my own work. Um, and as I read more and more about climate change in, in the social sciences, I'm wondering how we should think about it, um, whether it's a background condition, whether it's something that can um, be translated into different kinds of variables and factors. Um, but if 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 the climate crisis that we're dealing with, if it is an essential structural condition right, that affects how states act, how other actors behave, then is is there is does the social sciences need more climate specific and sensitive theories or approaches to make sense of what's happening right now? Or is that something that you've thought of or kind of grappled with? Yeah, I mean. I, I have thought about that. And I think that actually quite the opposite. I do not think mm -hmm. that um, we need, that the social sciences needs climate specific theories. I think that our social scientific tools are actually quite durable for understanding questions of power and inequality and how they're reproduced. And that we need to put those existing and durable tools to use in the context of climate change instead of pretending that climate change demands an entirely new social science. Uh, what was the hardest part of writing the book? Hmm. That's also a really good question. Um, I think that the hardest part was grappling with um, the actors, particularly Bangladeshi actors who exercise a kind of um, liminal power in Bangladesh within the adaptation regime. So like Bangladeshi researchers and climate advocates um, who have some power in shaping the, um, the structure of the adaptation regime, but also are, um, you know, structurally disempowered by their location within this sort of broader system of representation and action. And so um, there was this one passage in the book where I, I kept writing and rewriting and rewriting and I'd get feedback about it. It was um, 
it was about a, a sort of a colleague friend who was a Bangladeshi researcher who had been hired to write about this region where they were, where people were cultivating shrimp, where he and I had both spent a lot of time. And um, I was, um, I had this sense of my own clarity about um, what was happening in this area and um, the way that the development agencies were um, intervening and it, and how it was sort of inappropriate, the intervention. And he was saying to me, I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear about your clarity about what is going on here, because if I say this to them, I won't get hired again, basically. And my job is dependent on um, my sort of telling them what they want to hear. And I was like, no, like you, you, you know, you have to be honest and truthful and clear with them about, you know, the problems that we both know and understand. And he was just like, no, I can't, I, I, I can't talk to you about this. And he left. And um, so I wrote about it first in this way that was really sympathetic to him and, and like how challenging it must be to be a researcher, a Bangladeshi researcher whose job is reliant on, you know, framing climate impacts in a specific way and saying, oh yes, it is dystopic and there is no future. And, and you know, the, and, and this is the truth of climate change without the sort of complexity of the political economic analysis that I wanted to, you know, him to be clear about in this context. So I was very sympathetic in this first draft and then, someone read it and said, why are you being so sympathetic to this person who is reproducing this regime? He's the problem. He's creating exactly the problems that you're critiquing and you're being so kind to him. And so I rewrote it and I was like, oh, that, you know, this is how, how these power dynamics are reproduced. And um, this is like really terrible what he's doing. And then some other uh, friends, some colleagues read it and they were like, he's in such a structurally difficult position and you're being like so hard on him. And can't you appreciate that, you know, he is in a structurally different position relative to power than you are. And I was like, yeah, I can, <laughs> yeah, I can totally understand that. And, um, that I had this in, yeah, you know, not, not with the reviews, but I had this experience several different times where I felt really conflicted about it. And, uh, in this specific case, I ended up just like, writing directly about the different ways that different readers and sort of listeners had um, interpreted this and how um, it's not clear. It's not, it's not clear what role um, these sort of mid-level bureaucrats and kind of urban elites, um, how they should be interacting with this regime and that the, 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 their role relative to um, these power relations is like very complex and information, and it's important for us to be sensitive to that. And, and finally, what are you working on now? Yeah, so I'm um, I'm doing a, some more work on the politics politics of expertise, and I've been thinking, especially lately, about Dutch expertise in climate change adaptation. Um, and I'm also doing some work that started 
um, sort of as a totally different kind of project, which is uh, uh, like pedagogical work in my own teaching um, with curators at Kew Gardens, um, which is a sort of institution of colonial science and um, thinking about like what decolonization might look like at Kew Gardens. Um, and I've been starting to kind of bring those two different projects together along with some other colleagues who also are thinking about climate change and expertise and thinking about what decolonization can and should look like in the context of climate change um, in sort of Bangladesh and the Netherlands and a lot of other places. So that's that's what I'm working on right now. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This was really a pleasure. I appreciate all your thoughtful questions. And that was Cassia Paprocki, the author of Threatening Dystopias, The Global Politics of Climate Change Adaptation in Bangladesh. I'm Karthik Nachipan, and you've been listening to The Lake Podcast.